Father, we thank you now for this time to look at your words, to hear your voice as you speak to us through your words. Please would you do that? Please would you open our eyes, our blind eyes, so that we can see clearly who Jesus is, so that we can see what it means to follow him, to live for him, to serve him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know these words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Written by John Newton in his uh, hymn. He was, of course, an 18th century slave trader, and he was saved out of that barbarous lifestyle. He became a Christian after he cried out to God for mercy in a storm at sea. He was crossing the Atlantic. And he realised as he cried out to God in the middle of this storm, and he, he realised, who, who am I to expect God to answer any kind of prayer for mercy in the midst of this storm? As he realised the way that he was living his life, he knew was wrong. He knew the way that he was treating other human beings who'd been made in God's image. He knew that he was horrendously mistreating them uh, in the way that they were being treated in the, in the slave trade. And he knew that, and that meant really he deserved nothing from God. And then when, when he was saved from that storm, he realised that was a picture of what God was offering him in Christ. That anyone... Anyone at all, even someone like him, whatever they've done, can come to Christ and trust in him and find mercy, find what Christians call grace, and that's what he then wrote about in that famous hymn, Amazing Grace, the free gift of forgiveness and a fresh start in Christ. And this tells us something of what kind of God God is, that no one at all, not even you or me, is beyond the reach of his love. And that is what is at the heart of this chapter, chapter 9, that concludes this first uh, big section in the book of Acts. This is a surprising conversion. In many ways, this is the paradigm for all surprising conversions that have followed in the history of the Christian church. People you wouldn't expect to come to faith in Jesus who do, and there are plenty of them. This guy, Saul, that we read about in chapter 9, of course, is the guy who, whose name is changed a few chapters later in Acts to Paul. So he is the Apostle Paul who then uh, goes on to have a huge influence on the early church and he writes many of the letters in the rest of the New Testament. Um, and it's telling us how he was converted from a persecutor of Christians who was doing his utmost to end this Christian movement this tiny Christian movement which was just getting going and Saul was going around doing his best. He was there, we're told, at the end of uh, chapter 7, um, giving approval to uh, Stephen's death. And uh, he's then going around trying to see, where are these Christians? How can I uh, find them and gather them up and, and take them to prison, take them back to Jerusalem to the Jewish um, ruling officials to deal with them? doing his best as a Pharisee of Pharisees. 
So he's converted, we, we see in this chapter, from, a, from that kind of persecutor into the most ardent of Christian preachers, ready and willing to be persecuted himself. In, in one of his letters later in the New Testament, in, in the first letter of Timothy, um, chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, this is what he says. You can see it's on the screen. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and he says, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So can you see what he's saying? He's, he's saying, I, I had treated God and his people terribly, the worst of sinners, but God saved me, and he did that as an example so that everybody else can know that God can save even the worst of sinners, and they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. So that's what we're going to see in these verses now. That's thought unpacked, the most surprising conversion. When we use that word conversion, it means literally a turning around, a turning from running away from God to running back towards him, to being back in relationship with him. And that's what we see with Saul in this surprising conversion. We see, first of all, and you can see on the back of the notice sheet, you can see on the screen, verses 1 to 9, a new relationship with God, a new relationship with God. We, 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 as we saw, we, we first heard of Saul at the end of chapter 7. He, he's been going around trying to do his best to, to persecute Christians. He's a kind of secret police kind of guy. Um, he, he, he seems to get other people to do the actual work of beating people up and killing them. But he's, you know, if you think of the films, he's kind of the guy in the background with the suit who's kind of giving the orders for the tough guys to kind of do the beating up. He's the mastermind. So, you know, be in no doubt, he is the brains behind what is going on in trying to persecute this tiny Christian movement from spreading any further. And so at the beginning of chapter 9, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He's, uh, he's asking for letters from the high priest that he can give to the synagogues in Damascus, which is uh, in Syria, to make it clear that the, the authorities wish to identify anyone belonging to the way, which is the name that uh, early Christians had for themselves. They called themselves the way, the way of following Jesus. And he, and he says um, he, he wants letters to, to, to say that he, he wants to take them back to Jerusalem. And what follows is the original Damascus Road conversion experience. It's a phrase that still gets used, isn't it, even in our wider culture, the Damascus Road conversion experience. Well, it comes from here, a vision of Christ that only he can see, though others can hear the sound, we're told. A vision that changes him and ultimately changes the whole world. But what it does is it, it, it's more than simply turning Saul from a murderer into a nice person. You know, from a criminal to an upright member of society. It's not just that. That's what many people often imagine being a Christian means, isn't it? You know, getting back on the straight and narrow. 
um, which immediately reserves the need for, for a dramatic change in your life just for really obviously bad people like murderers. You know, they're the kind of people who need to have this kind of turning around experience. But, you know, upright, respectable people don't need that, we think. But actually, no, this is way more radical than that. And, and the key word that shows that in these verses is the word Lord. Now, why is that? Why is the word Lord so important? Well, verse 1, it was the Lord's disciples against whom Saul was breathing out murderous threats. Verse 4, when he falls to the ground, the voice says, do you see what the voice says? It's, it's, it's funny, this. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, he says. And we hear it again. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, hang on a minute. Isn't it? It's got nothing to do with Jesus. He's persecuting these Christian people. What's it got to do with Jesus? No, they're my people. Jesus is saying, you are persecuting me. Your sin is personal. It's against me personally. See, again, we often think sin is just breaking kind of lists of rules, don't we? That's, that's how people often think about it. As if, you know, and God is a bit like the kind of headmaster, head teacher kind of figure who catches us running in the corridor, you know? It's a slightly annoying kind of rule, but it's there and the head teacher takes it very seriously. You must not run in the corridor. Um, but, and you're guilty. And we kind of think, yeah, that's, that's what sin is. Um, but no, it's, it's far worse than that, you see. Sin is more like... You know, in the school context, it's more like spraying graffiti all over the headmaster's car. It's shouting abuse at his family. You know, those things are not just rule-breaking, are they? They're probably not even in the school rules. You know, they, they, they might have put, don't run in the corridor, but they won't have put, don't spray graffiti on the headmaster's car or be rude to his family. You don't need to put that. But the point is, when you do that, it's personal. I mean, it's breaking all kinds of rules, but it's personal against him and that's why it would lead no doubt to expulsion or whatever and it makes it far far worse so do you see when Saul seeks to do harm to Jesus's people he's harming Jesus himself and it's just important to notice this isn't it that actually this is an encouragement to God's people when they suffer in Jesus's name it's an encouragement to know this, isn't it? It's an encouragement to know that Jesus takes that personally. So if you live in a country where it's you know, officially illegal to express your Christian faith or it's clamped down on in, in various ways and, and restricted, and we know there are many countries around the world where it's like that, and, and Christians can live in fear and they can know that if I, if I make it clear I'm a Christian, I can, I can expect never to be offered a proper job, I can expect never to be treated properly by the authorities, I'll always be a, a second-class citizen because of my faith in Jesus. But it's an encouragement to know Jesus sees that. He sees the way his people are treated. And it's an, an encouragement to know actually too, you know, in, in the much smaller ways that currently, you know, in the UK... The, the, you know, do Christians experience persecution? Well, not in the way that you might do in North Korea, but in the smaller ways that sticking your hand up and saying, yeah, I'm a Christian in, in your office or, or maybe in your school and being known as a Christian and, and, and allowing and saying, actually, I'm, and that means I'm going to live differently. And there are some things I'm going to say no to 
that other people around me think are fine. And I'm going to say, no, actually, I can't do that because of my faith in Jesus. And that might be costly in, in much smaller ways. But again, to know Jesus sees that. And if people respond badly to that and you feel like I'm being treated badly because of that, Jesus sees that and he takes it seriously. That's an encouragement. But now here is Saul. Jesus says, why do you persecute me? And now he's done all this harm to God's people and now he is seeing Jesus face to face in this vision. And, and later in the, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul confirms, as he writes, he confirms this was a vision of the risen Jesus himself. And that in itself is striking. What, what happens to Saul here is a bit like the Old Testament visions of God. You know, the, um, a while ago, the small groups studied Ezekiel, not a particularly um, well-read book in the Bible. It's a great book to read, and we had a great time studying it. In the first chapter of Ezekiel, Ezekiel has a vision of God. But he doesn't actually see God himself. We're told he sees the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. You see, it's like three or four steps removed from actually seeing God himself. The appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And it's this amazing, extraordinary vision that he sees. And it makes him fall face down on the ground. Can you see how even just the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God is enough to humble you? It's just a fraction of his shadow, but that's enough. And, and that vision of God was something every devout Jew longed to see. So it's something that Saul, as a devout Pharisee, he, he would have longed to have this kind of vision. This is what they did. They would have meditated on this vision from Ezekiel chapter 1. It would be part of their uh, expression of their faith. Longing to have a kind of vision of God. And so what happens now? Saul's on this road to Damascus and he thinks he's doing God's work. He thinks, he's, you know, he thinks it's a good thing to be persecuting God's, uh, the, 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 this Christian movement. And he has this vision. And what does he see? He sees Jesus. He sees the risen Jesus. He sees the one whose people he's been trying to do his best to kill. So can you see the point? You know, he'd have been spending his life thinking, I'd loved, I'd longed to have that vision that Ezekiel had. And then he finally has it, and it's the guy whose people he's been trying to kill. It's a terrifying moment. And so what would you expect to happen? What you'd expect is for Jesus then to pronounce a word of judgment on Saul as he lies on the ground in terror. That would be fitting, wouldn't it? That would be appropriate, given what Saul has done and the murder of Stephen and all of that taking place. You've been persecuting me, now you get what you deserve. But what happens? Well, what he gets instead is mercy. Extraordinary mercy, isn't it? Get up, go into the city, and you will be told what to do. And we're told later that this vision of the risen Jesus is what qualifies Paul to be an apostle like the other apostles. The thing that makes you an apostle is someone who was a witness, who saw Jesus alive. Witness of the resurrection. That's what's happening here. So there, there is a sense that this Damascus Road conversion really is a one-off. 
it kind of says to us, listen to Paul. You know, he's had this experience. You, you've seen how, what, 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 that he's seen the risen Jesus. So listen, take his word seriously. And even today, you know, people still grumble about whether that we should listen to Paul. Well, no, we should. We should listen to Paul. What he's writing is God's word. And the reason for that is he was a, an apostle who saw the risen Jesus. And so in that sense, this is not something that we kind of expect is going to be normal for every Christian. We've seen that lots in the book of Acts, and we have to, we have to work out what's normal for every Christian, what's a kind of one-off foundational thing. And it's not normal for every Christian because there are no more apostles now. The apostles were the ones who saw the risen Jesus, the founders of the church. But then we need to remember that verse in 1 Timothy that we began with. This is still a kind of example of how God treats the worst of sinners. And the key is to see that what changes Saul's life is realising that Jesus is Lord. That up to now he's been rebelling personally against him and now that same Jesus says, you need to do what I say now, I'm the boss. That is what a Christian is, isn't it? Not someone who just tries to be good, tries to you know, live an upright life. Lots of people try and do that. But someone who says, no, I've, I've seen, I've realised Jesus is the boss and that's going to change everything. Have we seen that? That's what we need to see. First of all, then, a new relationship with God. And then we continue and we see a new relationship with God's people. A new relationship for God's people from verses 10 to the, to the first half of verse 19. So what happens next is another vision. And slightly funnily, it's a, it's a vision about a vision. So Ananias, and he's not the one who died in chapter 5. That was another Ananias, if you've been concentrating. I, I, can you imagine with this guy, Ananias, this is a kind of once-in-a-lifetime event, okay, <laughs> you know, to be given this sort of extraordinary vision. He's just an ordinary young Christian guy trying to <clears throat> live faithfully, and, and life is really difficult for these guys because of people like Saul, who've been going around trying to persecute them, and they've, they've scattered, they're living in fear, and he's given this vision. Oh, wow, you know, I'm, see, I'm hearing from God directly. This is extraordinary. And what is he told? He's told, go and look for Saul. Go and seek him out. You know, and, he, and he's, he's thinking, you know, verse 13... If you look, what's his response? You know, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. You know, it'd be one thing if the vision said, Ananias, be warned, that guy Saul you've heard about who persecutes Christians, he's coming. So get everybody and hide. Yeah, that would be a vision you'd kind of think, that's really helpful. And you know, Praise the Lord, we were given that vision and it saved us from this terrible thing. But it's the opposite. So he says, hang on, Jesus, are you absolutely sure that that's what you want me to do? Because I think I know what's going to happen here and it's not going to be nice. You know what he's trying to do to your own people, Lord? Yes, go, says Jesus. And the point is, you see, that it's God, isn't it, who gets to say who is in and who is out of the people of God. It's not us. You know, we have all kinds of expectations and limits on, you know, oh, well, I could never imagine that kind of person becoming a Christian. 
Um, but this person over here, I'm going to really concentrate on them. And God says, no, I'm, I'm in charge of that, actually. And you're going to have to trust me. This man, it turns out, is not only going to become one of my disciples, he's going to be the one to reach the Gentiles and their kings as well as the people of Israel. Verse 15. The most unlikely converts commissioned to reach the most unlikely people because we haven't heard of Gentiles coming to faith in Christ yet and we'll see that uh, sometime in the future when we come back to chapter 10. Now how would we respond to that? You know, Were we to be given such an extraordinary command? It sounds crazy, it sounds far too risky and then when you add into that, you know, Jesus appears to be talking about reaching Gentiles. I mean, what are we, what are we doing? This is crazy. It's utterly crazy talk. But Ananias trusts him. He listens and he goes. In verse 17, look at what he does when he gets there. Verse 17, he places his hands on Saul. And what does he say? He says, brother Saul brother Saul. What an extraordinary thing to say. You see, to an Ananias, who is Saul? Saul's basically a terrorist, isn't he? So well, this is like being told to go to the house of an ISIS terrorist and say, yep, I'm a Christian. Knowing that this particular terrorist has been personally responsible for the deaths of many other Christians previously. But he trusts what Jesus has said to him and he calls him brother. Do you know the story of Corrie ten Boom, who was a Christian who was sent with her family to a concentration camp by the Nazis in the Second World War because they as a family were trying to help Jewish people to escape captivity and in fact they were very successful until the, the, the Nazis finally caught up with them. But like the uh, Jewish people her family had tried to help, um, she endured horrendous conditions in the concentration camp and her father and her sister both died while they were there. But she survived and after the war she describes how she was speaking at a Christian meeting about her experiences and what she'd gone through. And a man came up to her after the meeting, kind of waited behind, came up to her and said, I don't know if you recognise me, but I was a guard in your camp that you were at. And I've realised that what I did was wicked. And I've become a Christian. Will you forgive me? And of course, Corrie ten Boom talks about the feelings inside her, kind of big turmoil of, oh my goodness, yes, I, I think I do recognise him. The terrible things that he did. But he's put his faith in Jesus who forgives sinners. And she describes, she says, her response really came from God through her. 
And she just felt her right hand extend out towards his as he held it out to her. And she said, yes, brother, I forgive you with all my heart. How, how can that kind of thing happen? How can that kind of reconciliation take place? Or only, it's only this Jesus who can turn enemies into brothers and sisters. And that is what happens with Ananias here. So do you see, becoming a Christian isn't just about changing our relationship with God. It's also about changing our relationship with one another, isn't it? They go together. There can be no enemies within the people of God. That's why the New Testament puts such an emphasis on our relationships with one another and how we treat each other. Because if even ex-concentration camp guards can find forgiveness and reconciliation in Christ with those that they previously caused such harm to, and there really can be no place for the kind of little, much lesser differences that often occur within God's people. And the New Testament puts such emphasis on the, you know, the one another commands. The way we treat each other is so important because it's an expression of, you know, if we can't forgive each other the little things, how can we expect God to forgive us? And think then of the most unlikely convert that you know. You think of someone you think, oh yeah, that, that, that person, they're never going to come to faith in Jesus. It might be someone very close to you. It might be someone that you've just sort of seen you know, at work or whatever and you just think, oh, I, can't, I can't imagine in a million years them ever being interested in these things. Maybe somebody who, in fact, has been not just indifferent, but causing harm to, to Christians in some way. Or somebody who's been so um, ridiculing and negative about Christian things. Can you imagine what it would take to be able to call that person brother or sister? That is, that is what the gospel can do. It is possible but it's in God's hands. And then, you know, we've been focusing on Ananias and how hard it would have been for him and what it meant to him in this situation. But I actually think, too, of what it would have felt like to be Saul at this point. You know, to, he's just realised he's the guy who's got it completely wrong. That those he had been trying to kill and even killing had actually been right about Jesus. How would he feel when he meets a Christian for the first time after coming to that realization? He's sitting there, he can't see, he's been blinded temporarily. You know, he, he must be terrified that he's about to be beaten up himself. And the first words he hears from a Christian are brother. All is okay. Not because what Saul did didn't matter, but because the price for his sins has been paid at the cross, where Jesus, who he's been persecuting, died for him so he could be forgiven. And therefore, those around him can forgive him too. 
So a new relationship with God's people. And then finally, we see a new relationship with God's world, verses 19 to 31. The, the change in Saul is remarkable. He takes a few days to recover his strength. And then he goes straight to the synagogues to preach. And what does he do? When he gets there, he says, Jesus is the Son of God. Which, given what happened to him, is the message that you'd expect him to say. So he doesn't go to the synagogues and tell them how to be good. He doesn't go to the synagogues and tell them how to improve their lives. But he says, let me tell you about Jesus who changed my life and who he is. And there, there is a model there for all of us, isn't there? So this is what we call evangelism, isn't it? This is what it looks like. And to begin with, people are astonished. You know, isn't he the guy who hates Christians? And he baffles them, we read. He baffles them by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 22. But that leads in turn to opposition, as Jesus predicted it would. The one who used to lie in wait for Christians has people lying in wait for him. And he's lowered in a basket through an opening in the wall to escape. And Luke draws our attention to fear in the final verses. So verse 26. Back in Jerusalem, the disciples fear him because they don't believe he's really become a Christian. It's the same reaction again. Really? Saul, you're bringing him here? What are you doing? But Barnabas convinces them. And, and what convinces them is Saul's lack of fear, actually, that he's willing to risk his life to tell others about Jesus. Well, if he's willing to do that, maybe we should take him seriously. And so the reading ends with the believers fearing the laws. And actually, fear is the enemy of evangelism, isn't it? We've, we've had a focus on evangelism this, all through this term. We've had this series in Acts. We began with some training from London City Mission. We, we've had these um, events, the best of both worlds. We've had water into wine, and uh, the uh, evolution has evolution disproved God event. And, and we've been doing training in the small groups. And one of the things we've seen in the, in the evangelism training, and it's been think, getting us to think way beyond just inviting people to a few events, but what this means in the whole of our lives as God's people. One of the, things, one of the big things that we've seen that will stop us speaking about Jesus to other people is fear, isn't it? It's fear. It's always easier to just say nothing. It's always easier to keep our heads down. It's striking that the best evangelists, the best people that talk to others about Jesus, are often those who've just come to faith themselves, like Saul here. Because over time then, kind of inertia sets in, we become more comfortable. Actually, we have fewer non-Christian friends as well, because we just find it easier to hang out with Christians. And, but Saul, and, and later when he was known as Paul, actually he, he then remained like this throughout his life, didn't he? It's not inevitable that Christians should find it hard to talk to others about Jesus. But that is why Luke highlights this theme of fear. Because it's only when we fear the Lord that we find we have nothing else to fear. What's the worst that can happen? You know, we kind of, what are we, you know, what are we worried about? We think people are going to get the wrong end of the stick. They might accuse us of things that aren't true. They might call us bigots. They might cancel us. Will any of those things take away what we already have in Christ, eternal life in Christ? That, that is what Saul has come to understand, that he's got what matters now. He's got the mercy that he didn't deserve. 
For, for us, it may be that we just need to keep going back to where we started, back to God's extraordinary, undeserved grace in Christ. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's only when we remember how little we deserve what we have that we're motivated to realise that we have nothing to lose because we already have everything that matters and no one can take that away from us. So John Newton, we began with, John Newton had a life a bit like the Apostle Paul. In, in later years, after he'd come to Christ and he turned his back on slave trading, he, he actually became a Christian minister and he was a vicar in the city of London. And towards the end of his life, he wrote his own epitaph for his grave. And it said this, John Newton, Clark, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the mercy of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had so long laboured to destroy. And then right before he died, he told a friend, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. See, it's only that news that will turn someone from an enemy of God and his people to a preacher of God's word to his world. God did it for the worst of sinners. He can do it for us as well.